From the Heart.org Radio, this is The Fellow's Corner. Welcome, everyone. I am Philippe Genereux, an interventional cardiology fellow at Columbia University Medical Center in New York City. Today, we will talk about a very exciting subject in the field of interventional cardiology, the transartic valve implantation. So for the next 20 minutes, I will have the chance and the honor to discuss with one of the pioneers of this technique, Dr. Marty Billion. Dr. Billion is a professor of medicine at Columbia University, is the founder and the chairman of the Cardiovascular Research Foundation, and also one of the principal investigators of the partner trial. Dr. Leon, welcome to the Fellows Connor. It's great to be here, Philippe. Thank you. Dr. Leon, we are currently in a very exciting period in the field of international cardiology, and we are about, I think, potentially to see a major change in the algorithm of treatment of a frequent cardiovascular disease, the aortic stenosis. So we have implanted so far more than 10,000 valves worldwide, and so far the results seem to be promising. So Dr. Leon, I want to divide the discussion of today in three parts, the past, the present, and the future. So first question for you, you have been involved in all the steps of creation of this device and in all the changes in the technique of deployment. From an historical point of view, can you tell us what did we learn from the early experience and now where do we stand in uh, terms of success rate and complication rate? Well, thank you, Philippe. It's really my pleasure to speak to the heart.org on this very exciting new topic. I have been involved in the early development of some of the initial devices that are associated with transcatheter aortic valve implantation. I was involved with the early work prior to Alain Crevier's first proof-of-concept case, which was April 2002. I was involved in some of the animal experiments that were done, which helped to develop the devices that could be used in those live cases. From the beginning, we had imagined that perhaps the safest way to perform this procedure was using what's called the antegrade transvenous technique, which means literally going from a femoral vein, crossing the interatrial septum, crossing the mitral valve, making a right angle turn in the ventricle, and then antegrade approaching the aortic valve and implanting it that way. We somehow felt that that would be a more stabilizing and an easier way to actually perform this procedure. And when we began, that was the approach that we had used, the antegrade transfemoral venous route. And the earliest cases done by La Crebier involved using that strategy. We quickly learned that in these very sick and, frankly, unstable patients with critical aortic stenosis, that those kinds of intracardiac manipulations were extremely difficult, that stiff guide wires in the ventricle could cause traction on the mitral valve and cause hypotension and mitral regurgitation, and that became an extremely difficult procedure to do that required multiple very experienced operators that was fraught with complications and we quickly learned that this was not a technique that could be easily generalized. But very important, we learned from that experience that even in these sickest patients, these are patients refused for surgery and truly who had comorbidities that would put them you know, at the very edge of what we would conceive of treating these days, uh, that even in those patients we had proven that you could implant this stent valve support structure apparatus in the aortic position, that the hemodynamics were superb, that we learned a lot about sizing of the valve. We learned a lot about how to be able to stop the heart transiently for a short period of time to allow us to position the valve correctly. So some of the key steps that we learned during those difficult early experiences between 2002 and 2005 were key in trying to further develop this technique as something that could be done more generally by many different operators around the world. 
And my understanding of the early experience at Tallinn is that one thing that we learn when we look at the first John Webb paper in circulation in 2007, publishes 50 first case and dividing 25 first case and 25 case following, we saw an increase in success rate from 76% to 96% and a decrease in mortality from 16 to 8%. So basically all this improvement has been done probably by increasing and improving the screening of the patient, the patient selection. And to help us, we have many score systems. We have the STS score, the Euro score, the Person score. But as we know, those score are not perfect. What do you think should be the perfect score for those patients? And do you think we need to create a new score for those patients in the future? Well, first, I think that we do have to credit John Webb with really transforming the technology from that initial anthigrade Cribier experience, and he was the one that helped refine the technique that allowed us to do the transarterial retrograde approach, which is the approach most commonly used right now for both the core valve and the Edwards systems. So John deserves all the credit. Clearly, there's a learning curve, and clearly that learning curve involves both experience, being able to do the procedure and do it well, and a part of the learning curve is, as you've suggested, is how to select the right patients. And the kinds of screening tests that we now do were simply absent in the early experience. We do very careful echocardiograms, often transesophageal echocardiograms, to correctly understand aspects that relate to what the correct sizing of the valve will be and certain other anatomic features that um, enable us to more accurately decide how the procedure is going to be done. We do CT angiograms and look very carefully at the peripheral vasculature to see if these large sheaths can be accommodated by the patient's current anatomy. So I think that the training process, the learning curve process, patient screening, familiarity with doing this procedure, which is a different procedure than what we've ever done before, I think is crucial to obtaining the kind of results that we feel will be optimal in patients with critical aortic stenosis, elderly, multiple comorbidities. Now, as part of the screening, you mentioned these risk score algorithms. None of them are perfect. It's been clearly established, and many people have spoken in a passionate way about this, that if you're dealing with high-risk patients over a Euro score of 10 or an STS score of 5, that these score algorithms are not very good at actually predicting either operative or procedural risk. In particular, the logistic Euroscore breaks down dramatically in high-risk patients and simply should not be used as a screening tool. We have used the STS score, but there are many specific patient factors that are excluded from STS, including, as you mentioned, porcelain aorta, frailty, radiation heart disease, radiation chest wall disease, a variety of things. So it really requires that, yes, we use some quantitative risk algorithm, and I think it will be better defined in the future with data that we're currently accumulating, plus, in addition, a very thoughtful physician who knows the patient, the family, understands the patient's expectations, that can help make a decision about whether or not we should go ahead with this procedure. Great. In the prison so far, we have, like I said earlier, maybe more than 10,000 valve implants, and the, this experience is shared between two devices, mainly the Edwards Sapien XT system and the core valve revolving system. The Edvol Sapien system is made of three bovine pericardial tissue leaflet mounted in a balloon expandable tank frame. And on the other end, the core valve is an 18 French multi level self expanding nitinal frame, which is available in two sizes a 26 millimeter valve and a 29 millimeter valve. The Edward Sapien is available in two sizes a 23 and a 26 millimeter valve. So, can you summarize uh, basically the advantages and the disadvantages of both systems regarding to the sizing, the access complication, and the AV block? 
I don't want to go into too much technical detail, but the reality is these two systems could not be further different than you could possibly imagine. One is a very long, self-expanding, night and all support structure or cage that predictably covers the coronary arteries, is greater than five centimeters in length, that is placed more deeply into the left ventricular outflow tract, and is also fixated in a super sinus location within the ascending aorta. It's a porcine pericardial valve. It has much longer leaflets, and as I said, it's self-expanding, which means it may mold to non-circular geometries a little bit better than a balloon expandable device. It is not implanted using pacemaker techniques, and it can be unsheathed gradually and safely so that you can try to achieve optimal positioning. The Edwards is balloon expandable. The current version that's been used, which is the Edwards Sapien valve, is made out of stainless steel, looks like a stent. The versions that are currently being tested are made out of a cobalt alloy, the so-called Sapien XT. The tissue is bovine pericardium. It's a trileaflet valve. It's much shorter. It's meant to be very much more similar to what a surgeon implants when he does aortic valve replacement. So the support structure height is anywhere from 14 to 17 millimeters. It's intended to be placed just below the coronary ostia and just below the true hinge point of the valve in the so-called annular or subannular zones. And it is implanted using a pacemaker technique where you literally create mechanical asystole with rapid ventricular pacing for as long as 10 to 15 seconds to optimally locate the device. So they're distinctly different devices. Importantly, both have achieved very good hemodynamic results. So far, both have had what I would consider to be durable results, at least for the midterm, at least for the first one, two, three years. We're not seeing uh, any predictable deterioration in valve function. Both have had relatively mild degrees of paravalvular leak. It's difficult to compare one versus the other, maybe slightly less with the core valve because it is a self-expanding device. Both do encompass different size ranges, so the current Edwards can treat smaller annuluses, and the current core valve can treat larger annuluses, and I'm sure both systems will fill in those gaps in the future. The main advantage right now with the core valve system is that it truly is an 18 French device and an 18 French device will accommodate smaller peripheral vasculature and that certainly is an advantage. The disadvantage is that it is placed lower into the outflow tract and it places some significant pressure on the membranous septum below the annular region and in doing so there's a higher frequency of conduction system abnormalities, particularly AV block and a higher requirement for permanent pacemakers. The Edwards system looks more like a surgical system, has the advantage of not covering the coronary arteries, causing fewer pacemaker problems, but you do have to have this rapid pacing run as you implant it. There may be slightly more paravalvular leak. It's not clear, but that's something to consider. And it's a larger profile device, 22 and 24 French sheets, which means you've got to have larger peripheral vessels in order to implant it. Now, both systems can accommodate for vascular incompatibility. The Edwards system accommodates for it by having a transapical approach where you can go antegrade via the LV apex in patients without good vascular access. The core valve can accommodate by using a transaxillary approach right in the region of the subclavian artery with a direct cut down if the patient's peripheral iliofemoral vessels will not accommodate the device. Thank you for a very good summary of the two devices. So mainly in the future, currently, yearly in the United States, more than 100,000 patients are undergone surgical AVR issues. So in the near future, let's say five or 10 years, what is 
the percentage of the procedure deleting will be done, first of all, by the transartic valve implantation, and, uh, and according to your experience, which percentage of cases will be done either by TA or by TF or even subclavian access? Well, this is all very speculative. First, we have a clinical trial that's been completed that is in the follow-up phase, and those data will have to be carefully examined, and hopefully those data will be sufficient to justify commercial approval based upon the results. If that happens, it will likely happen sometime in 2011 or sometime next year in the United States. And I think that will have an important impact. And clearly, it will be approved for a very specific indication, first for inoperable patients and then for high-risk patients. So what that really means is probably no more than 10% of the current AVRs done in the United States would be patients that would be candidates based upon evidence-based medicine for this new procedure. Now, there'll be additional patients that were not referred to surgeons that have aortic stenosis and multiple comorbidities that would be included in this. So I think that, that it is certainly likely that based upon the current data that we have, if the trials are positive, that there will be at least... 15 or 20,000 of these procedures could be done on a yearly basis. And now, at the same time, of course, we'll be doing studies in somewhat lower risk, or what we would call perhaps standard risk patients. And based upon the outcomes of those studies, that could literally transform the field so that as many as 50% of patients or more that have critical aortic stenosis, that have good indications for aortic valve replacement, that they might be candidates for a transcatheter approach. The majority will be transfemoral, but there'll be what I think is a considerable minority that would be good candidates for either the transapical or transsubclavian approach. Great. So, of course, all those uh, new devices create a lot of enthusiasm for centers to start up a valve program. So, based on your experience, what are the mandatory requirements for a center to start a valve program uh, based on the team who, who need to be involved and all the, the screening process? So, what are the mandatory requirements for a center to start a valve program? Certainly in our center, and we believe and we preach this as part of the partner trial, it's not just an acronym for a study, it's an acronym for a philosophy of how we manage these patients. Previously, coronary artery disease, many other forms of treatment that we utilize in patients with cardiovascular disease are really done in silos where either the surgeons or the interventionalists, yes, they communicate, but they do not communicate regularly. They do not screen patients collectively. It's not done with what I would call an umbrella approach. We believe strongly that to perform this procedure optimally requires what we call a heart valve therapy center. That center requires equal involvement of medical cardiology, valve specialists who don't do procedures, echocardiography, imaging specialists who also understand things like CTA, cardiac surgeons and interventional cardiologists working together, screening the patients together and deciding what would be the most appropriate therapy in patients based upon a good understanding of the patients, a good recognition of what your skill levels are and what the evidence-based medicine and reimbursement practices will allow. So we think that's going to be the culture of how we do this, which is very different than what we've done before. The environment also has to change. By the environment, I mean where you do these procedures. This has to be treated like a surgical procedure. You are implanting a permanent heart valve, so it's got to be done under strict aseptic conditions. We believe strongly that the hybrid OR cath lab concept is a very important component of this and would strongly suggest that as centers want to undertake take these more exotic 
advanced technology procedures that they outfit their cath lab environment so that they do have the capability to be able to perform operations in their cath labs or interventional procedures in their ORs. The nursing staff has to be trained. The ICU, CCUs has to be sensitized to the kinds of patients that we're treating in terms of post-procedure care. So this is not just a transforming technology in terms of what we can do to improve patients that have critical AS and not many other options for treatment, but this is transforming from the standpoint of being able to actually manage a whole new environmental process of taking care of patients with complex valvular heart disease, which means the integration of physicians, screening teams, cath labs, ORs. It's very different than what we had previously done in the management of coronary disease. Right. So I think one point which is very important, and you unfazed a lot on this point, is the, the close collaboration between CT surgeon and interventional cardiologist. And I think in my experience with you and your team in Columbia show very the, the importance of this collaboration for a good outcome for the patient. So my last question will be, do you think that this technique in the future should be restricted only to high-volume academic or high-volume center or uh, generalized globally? Well, I think it's certainly going to be generalized globally, but in terms of who should do the procedures, dedicated physicians who understand valvular heart disease and are willing to make a commitment to develop a certain level of expertise in transcatheter valve therapy. I predict in the United States that will be no more than 25% of the current interventional physicians or cardiologists will have the volume, the capability, and the environment to be able to do these new advanced technology procedures. So it's not for everyone. It's not for the weak of heart. It should be for people who are clearly making the commitment to get the proper training and have the environment to perform these procedures with the highest expectations for safety and effectiveness. So, uh, Dr. Leon, thank you so much to have participated in this session. I think uh, knowing your schedule, you're a busy cardiologist, so, but thank you so much for sharing your experience on this very exciting new technology. And I hope, like the patient who is going to be treated with this valve, the TEVI will have a long life. Thank you so much, Dr. Leon. Thank you, Philippe. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to The Fellows Corner on the Heart.org radio.